You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics. Proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. I'm Billy Sauce with Scott Ferguson. This month we speak with Nick Romeo, New Yorker writer and author of The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, out this past January with Public Affairs. Much more than a simple rebuke to Margaret Thatcher's infamous axiom, Romeo's The Alternative inventories the most promising experiments in radical economic democracy underway across the world today. From the piloting of a publicly owned and run gig work platform in Long Beach, California, to implementation of a true price system in Amsterdam, to the rollout of public budgeting in Cascais, Portugal. Taken together, these and other initiatives profiled in the book share a vision of the economy as a place of moral action and accountability, as Romeo puts it. While modeling the kind of radical political economic imagination that is so utterly and urgently needed to meet our dire ecological, social, and political moments. Special thanks to Nick for joining us to talk about his excellent book. Thanks also to Mike Lewis for transcribing the conversation, to Robert Rush for the graphics, and to Nanin Gula for the theme tune. As always, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing in Money on the Left, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, which is linked to in the show notes. Nick Romeo, welcome to Money on the Left. Thanks for having me. So we've asked you to join us today because you have a new book that's just out with uh, public affairs books called The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. And we want to get into the book, but maybe to kick off our conversation, you can tell our listeners a little bit about your professional background and how you came to become the reporter of political economy at the New Yorker magazine. Sure. Yeah, I like that description. I'm not sure the magazine would endorse it, but I, I will. <laughs> um, you know, kind of two levels at which I could answer. The, the first is just the last few years I have been covering a kind of political economy beat for, for the New Yorker. Um, I was in Europe for a lot of that time, which was helpful in finding interesting economic paradigms and models that are a little outside of the status quo. Um, a kind of second level is zooming back a bit more in time. Um, you know, some of my graduate work in academia was in ancient philosophy, which might seem very different, but my way into economics, the thing that actually let me kind of get excited about it was reconceiving of it as sort of a branch of political philosophy. Not only is the word from ancient Greek, but really for a lot of the tradition of economics, the subject itself was thought of as political economy. And as that title suggests, there are these inescapable normative and ethical dimensions to it. And so I think if you kind of push on economic premises pretty quickly, you get to really rich philosophical questions about what is a good life? What is a fair society? And, you know, these are just eternally interesting. So so who are your guys in terms of uh, ancient philosophy? Well, you know, Aristotle, I think, is actually incredibly insightful as an economist. And um, and I, I'm interestingly not alone in that view that the economist Sam Bowles ends a book on sort of game theory with the, the observation that a lot of these insights that have come out of the field in the last 10 years are sort of rediscoveries of Aristotle and that Aristotle in a lot of ways is still more subtle than contemporary economists. So I think a lot of the brighter economics people today are 
cognizant of, of that intellectual heritage. I think most of the book, most of the chapters are exploring various kinds of alternative programs, ways of uh, not just conceiving of political economy, but practicing it and structures and organizations and designs. And we want to get into those details, but maybe we can begin the way you begin the book, which is um, kind of reframing for a more popular audience, reframing what what the proper questions and problems of economics are. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little a little taste of how you set up the book and how you frame it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first chapter of the book is about the struggle for the Econ 101 curriculum that is currently raging in academia. And that sort of lets me get into some of the history of the field and how it's been conceived and organized in the last few centuries. So one sort of simple way is to think about a famous quote from, from John Maynard Keynes, who, who once remarked that the master economist has four elements. He or she must be mathematician, philosopher, um, statesman and historian to some degree. So a critique of how economics has kind of emerged in academic context in the last 50 years would be that it really shears off three of those four elements and has a highly, highly mathematicized form, especially as you get more into graduate level work. It's, it's very, very, um, interested in, in formal modeling and quantification. Uh, I think Keynes is right, though, that these other elements are essential to the discipline. And so there are people who share this view still today, um, like Hajin Chang, who I quote in the book, was an economist at Cambridge for, for many decades. He, within the last decade, remarked that economics is just one long political argument. Um, the, the feminist economist Julie Nelson, I think, is also pretty sympathetic to this sort of framing of the field. So... You know, you might wonder kind of what's at stake here, right? It's a, a fair question when academics are kind of debating about the contents of a curricula. You might think, does this actually matter? Uh, you know, in the first chapter, I also get into some of the political stakes for how economics is taught. Like Paul Samuelson wrote one of the best-selling econ textbooks of the 20th century. He also famously said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws if I get to write its economics textbooks. So, you know, he got his wish. His his book helped introduce Keynes to America. Um, there's something pr- profoundly creepy about that remark. I think it's very kind of anti-democratic. He, he's cognizant of his role as a shaper of cultural common sense. Um, you know, he can sort of constrain or expand political imagination at will. Delegating that to an economist um, or to anyone, you know, even if you're sort of sympathetic to their politics, there's there's a kind of principled objection to doing that, right? I mean, we should be a little more explicit in our premises and assumptions. So another way to think about uh, the stakes of economics education and why does it matter what's an Econ 101 is that, um, you know, we, we don't want just one person or even a set of people uh, presenting what are moral and political assumptions under the rubric of natural science. So a final strand that I think is relevant and that I try to trace at least at some level in the first chapter of the book is this sort of maneuver that analogizes the economy to a physical sphere with discoverable kind of 
immutable laws akin to laws of physics or chemistry. This dates all the way back to the, the dawn of the, the field in the modern period. So uh, the, there's a, a quote I have in the book from David Ricardo. He's critiquing poverty relief in the early 1800s in England, and he invokes the law of gravitation. And he says these poverty relief efforts are are going to produce more misery and suffering, and this is as certain as the law of gravitation. Fast forward a century, early um, early 20th century, or it might be late 19th, tur- turn of 19th to 20th century, William Graham Sumner, very influential American intellectual, um, uses the same metaphor in a somewhat different context. He's talking about increasing corporate concentration of power. He says, this is just as inevitable as gravitation. It's um, sort of a law of the universe, right? So the progressive agenda uh, around antitrust and dismantling monopolies, this is as naive and misguided as literally opposing the law of gravitation. Fast forward another hundred years. Today, this tradition is alive and well. Um, One example is there was a graph in science, I think in 2014, showing wealth inequality. And people who describe themselves as econophysicists commented that the, the sort of the slope of this graph, which was an exponential curve, was was an inevitable feature, sort of akin to other slopes that you can find throughout nature, whether it's the size, the distribution of sizes of ant colonies, um, population clusters of microbes, etc. All of these sort of patterns in nature were mapped onto wealth inequality to once again justify the status quo and frame any opposition to it as similarly misguided to opposing the law of nature. So, you, you know, you can see how fighting about Econ 101, while it might seem uh, academic, right, it's actually like the stakes are quite high. This does shape and constrain political imagination. And the, the sort of the goal of chapter one was to raise these issues and also kind of highlight the work of people who are trying to expand the way the discipline is taught. You know, it's the quote that you mentioned from Samuelson um, got my hackles raised a little bit because Samuelson it features frequently uh, in our spaces and in my mind in the MMT world specifically because he uh, in a in a documentary about John Maynard Keynes in the eighties basically the the effect of his statement was we may not need to balance the budget talking about the federal government like that's not actually something that needs to happen however. And he's saying this on tape in a, in a documentary about Keynes. Uh, it might be important for people to believe that, right? Because if they if they didn't think that there were restrictions and that we had to balance the budget, then anarchistic chaos and inefficiency would prevail. Um, mm. And that's particularly insidious next to the quote that you have in your book, which is exactly, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties if I can write its economics textbook. So acknowledging... In 1990, um, the effect of his work, you know, that that has been published and revised since 1948 and then uh, ultimately subject of some criticism, but dominant for a long time. Um, And and talking with economists who are currently practicing, uh, whether they're in orthodox schools or heterodox, I think that there's just generally a frustration with Samuelson, but I'm particularly offended by those acknowledging the kind of narrative the power of the narrative right on one hand and then on the other hand saying yeah you know we get into like it's necessary to have some of these fictions so that people don't get too out of hand and start demanding nice things like social welfare benefits uh on a mass scale 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, just to pile on to Samuelson here for a minute, another comment that he made on national television, I I think this was on 60 Minutes, he was discussing what used to be called Kelso plans. And these were the predecessors of ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans, which have been extraordinarily successful in sharing equity with working people across America. This is kind of our best answer to worker-owned cooperatives um, like the Mondragon co-ops in Spain. So he's, he's, he's on national TV and the interviewer asks him, what are his thoughts on Kelso plans? And he evokes Marie Antoinette. He says, oh, sure. It has a Marie Antoinette-ish ring to it. Let them have capital <laughs> describing workers. Um, so I, I just thought this was wildly irresponsible. I mean, he's sort of, suggesting that extending some level of worker ownership will result in the French Revolution. Um, He also then made some comment about how it's similar to lollipops growing on trees. So once again, this would contravene a fundamental natural law of the universe. And oh, if that argument doesn't persuade you, it will also lead to enormous bloodshed. So it's it's a very irresponsible comment. Luckily, it's been um, contravened by 50 years of success for ESOPs. But I mean, you do wonder how much more widespread those could be if they were sort of the default model for business ownership. Of course, workers have an equity stake in the businesses that they make successful. I mean, what if that was just the default as opposed to a sort of niche organizational structure? I think one can reasonably point a finger at at people like Samuelson and say there's really some blame there. They're kind of abusing this position of expertise to advance very um, plutocratic agendas. After having been accused, as you note in your book, too, that uh, his in the 1940s when MIT was looking at it, they thought that it might be too communistic, right? Too socially minded. <laughs> Not really. Isn't that wild? No. Yes. And meanwhile, meanwhile, he he's primarily responsible for uh, shoving Keynes's legacy back into a neoclassical ISLM framework, right? And there was there there was another Keynesian textbook um, by an economist named Tarshi, right? That that was much more faithful to what Keynes was up to, um, and pushing pushing hard on neoclassical assumptions, whereas Samuelson um, basically tamed the Keynesian resolu- revolution as he was perpetuating it. Um, one of one of the things I really appreciated about uh, your introductory framing was taking non-strictly economic knowledges uh, seriously, whether whether that's literature and short stories or it's uh, comedy sketches from the UK. Um, I don't know if you want to talk to us a little bit about how how some of those other other ways of of understanding political economy are important to you. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I'm glad you raised that. I mean, I, I start the book with a short story by Leo Tolstoy, who I think is like a wonderfully subtle thinker about economics, um, you know, in his nonfiction as well as his fiction. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's interesting how even in Anna Karenina, right, Levin is is fascinated by political economy. He's always reading the, the political economists that were gaining ascendance in 19th century Europe. He goes out and um, does farm work with his workers uh, you know, like these are sort of semi-indentured people. He has this sort of anguish 
this ethical torment about his own wealth. Um, so Tolstoy was fascinated by economic themes in fiction and nonfiction. But I started the book with a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's this sort of beautiful, concise moral fable that I think should be taken seriously as an investigation of a lot of economic themes. You know, you can find in literary form antecedents for a lot of the stuff that behavioral economics folks think that they have discovered, whether that's the sunk cost fallacy, the idea of like a hedonic treadmill. All of this is implicit in the narrative and, and much more beautifully rendered than in any behavioral econ study you could find. Um, it, it's 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 a kind of pointed story because after seeking constant acquisition, the hero um, dies and ends up in six feet of earth in which he's buried. So this is, in fact, the quantity of land that all of us need eventually, right? <laughs> Death is this kind of final check on acquisitive frenzy. Um, it's also kind of fascinating how it links up with other material in the book. I mean, I was talking with someone in upstate New York who was the retiring CEO of an optics manufacturing firm. And in his own way, he more or less paraphrased the title of the book. He had some options when he was retiring. He could have sold to a strategic buyer for a lot of money, probably hundreds of millions. Um, instead, he converted his business to an employee ownership trust to kind of secure in perpetuity some very pro-social policies like um, not offshoring the company, sharing profits with workers. So in describing those choices and why he did that, he more or less said, I I'm just one person. Like, how much money do I need? I mean, if I took the higher offer... I would spend my whole retirement just doing money management. And more importantly, I would sort of have betrayed these values that I spent decades um, building the business to kind of enshrine those values. So, you know, I think it's striking to hear like a guy in upstate New York echoing Tolstoy. Um, th there's something universal about this human intuition that uh, there's, it, it's, it's pretty profoundly misguided to always have that next acquisitive summit you must ascend and it's it's play it does play out too in in kind of pop culture and in media i keep thinking of uh daniel plainview and there will be blood right at the end it's just him and his little bowling alley right uh, totally. he's finished right another um major i think critique that runs throughout many of your chapters uh, that we very much share with you uh is a rejection of the very notion of economic externalities Right. The, the idea that somehow uh, the only proper sphere of, of economic analysis, behavior, meaning uh, uh, is the private marketplace, the private competitive marketplace, and anything that any effects that uh, seem to exceed that very narrow sphere um, is external to it and then can be can be understood and uh, variously priced or accounted for or discounted for um, as a so-called externality. And this, uh, I think, is um, a pretty good transition to talking about your first, like, really substantive chapter about alternative programs, uh, which is about um, the, the, the theory, but also the practice of what's called true price. And I'm wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think at a really simple level, the intuition is well captured by a bumper sticker that I often see walking around in Berkeley, California, it, which says something to the effect of, when you throw something away, what do you mean by away? <laughs> 
So externality, like this term that's kind of central to economics, presupposes some border beyond which we kind of pay less attention to some impact of how we produce or consume or transport economic goods. So true pricing is an initiative. Sometimes it's kind of assimilated to a broader set of accounting practices called true cost accounting. Um, True price specifically is in Amsterdam, it originated in the work of a nonprofit there, although it has affinities to other movements around Europe and the world. If you think about the kind of Econ 101 classic example of apples, you go into a grocery store. Um, currently, we have very limited visibility into all sorts of information about what we consume. So to stick with the apple example, um, maybe you know that it's organic and This does convey actual information. There's a legally enforceable definition of that term. But even the organic label tells you nothing about its carbon footprint, where it came from. Maybe you do know that it's local and you can infer something about the carbon footprint. This tells you nothing still, your local organic apple. You have no information about the people who were involved in transporting and growing it. So workers' conditions, did they have the right to unionize? Were they paid adequately? No visibility into that. Okay, so maybe it's a fair trade local organic apple. It's getting better. There are some wage floors. There's some content to fair trade. It might not be as robust as we could hope. Um, But you're sort of getting the picture here that I'm painting of a very partial patchwork of labels, none of which really gives you insight into all the things one might care about. And, And in fact, I think a lot of people do care about. And all of these labors are also subject to kind of copycats, right? People who want to use the label but evacuate all content and meaning. So they, they're tr- the free rider problem, as it's called in game theory. They want all the benefits but none of the costs of using the label. So <clears throat> there are all kinds of sort of self-certification schemes in industry. You know, the, the terms like sustainable and natural are largely meaningless in a grocery store, and that's, that's challenging. Um, True Price says somewhat audaciously, look, what if we actually could capture all of the relevant externalities for a good, um, quantify them, and, you know, there's, I think, reason reasonable people can disagree about how that works or even some of the moral hazards that can be involved in doing that for certain kinds of infractions, but their sort of view is that this is a, a sort of second best option in a lot of cases. It gives you some information and that's better than this, the default option of no information. So if we can quantify all the relevant externalities, um, whether that's something environmental or something involved in the treatment of humans throughout a supply chain and communities, um, suddenly you have information that is relevant not only to consumers. You could have consumer-facing applications where in a grocery store, for instance, you actually had one product with a true price and another product with a different true price and you could compare the prices and this would sort of instantly tell you the size of the externalities of the two products that would do a few things right on the one hand insofar as people are sensitive to price signals they would consume less of the worst product because its price would be higher simultaneously this would motivate a company to change its production and transportation and supply chain issues that resulted in such a high true price. So if they're destroying soil quality, depleting aquifers, um, 
involved in all kinds of labor abuses or human rights issues throughout the supply chain. All of that shows up in the true price, which can only be lowered by improving those issues. Right. And that's, that's only the consumer facing application of true prices. It, it can and also is being used as a kind of internal auditing tool. So even if consumers are not paying that price, like the European chocolate company, Tony's, Tony's Chocolone, they use true price analysis to try to improve their supply chains year after year. So it's a kind of benchmarking whereby they're trying to improve and they now have ways to measure all of these different dimensions of the impacts of products. I think maybe the most uh, ambitious but hopeful application of true pricing would be in policy and regulation. I mean, you can imagine if you think about what is subsidized in the American food system, for instance, imagine replacing that with a more uh, sort of rational and coherent set of taxes and subsidized subsidies that reflect the actual impacts, whether that's um, showing up in medical costs, right? If, if people eat very unhealthy and addictive food, in some sense, the cost of that shows up in the medical system, maybe years or decades from now. It, of course, there are also huge ecosystemic costs. Um, one report I quote in the book from the Rockefeller Foundation that's using true price analysis essentially tripled the annual cost of the U.S. food system. Right? It's actually costing about three times more to produce and consume food the way we do currently. Uh, a, a, a thing I think that is crucial to keep in mind with true pricing, I mean, there's a temptation to think, well, this is just sort of making up numbers and then adding it to the cost of things. And how could we do that, especially with inflation running high? I think the one key insight that helps me when I think about what a true price means is that the price is is already going to be paid. It's not that we're inventing a price, that, that there is some sort of true price. What we're talking about is who is going to pay them. So when we buy incredibly cheap goods um, that are produced by supply chains that on some level involve a lot of human suffering and misery and also environmental degradation, when that cheapness is completely illusory. It's not that by not paying it, we're making the prices go away. We're just making someone else pay those prices. Often someone um, in a much more vulnerable position maybe somewhere else in the world, maybe in our own our own country. There's been a lot of kind of terrifying reporting in the last year about the resurgence of child labor in American factories. Um, maybe they're people in future generations. Maybe they are non-humans. Maybe they are animals and ecosystems. But there is this price. We're just not paying it. So true pricing kind of imports, I think, very reasonable moral and ethical considerations back into the economic sphere and says, well, maybe we broadly conceived should be paying these prices, not necessarily consumers. I mean, companies could pay them, governments could pay them, consumers could help. Um, what seems least defensible is what we're currently doing. And that's kind of ignoring them and having vulnerable workers and the natural world bear the brunt of our, our current consumption and production practices. And if I understand you correctly, you know, the 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 importance is not coming up with exact pricing uh as if as if now we're getting the number right. If anything, it seems more about 
re-injecting or newly disclosing the political, rhetorical, qualitative, ethical, and moral um, constructs that that hide behind seemingly natural prices. And in that way, it seems to me like this this really speaks to or fits within a much longer tradition of thinking about um, what was called, especially in the Middle Ages, a just price theory, right? And I'm thinking about the writings of Thomas Aquinas and others who um, were not just we're not just talking about, you know, what's a fair contract between two people or two firms or something like that. But how how does the whole system get organized in order to create more a, a more just economic system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like a fascinating tradition, the the just price theorizing from, from Aquinas onward. Um, but no, I, I think that's right. And there's something very interesting sort of psychologically that happens when you use quantification as a tool. There is this illusion of kind of utter precision where there's a sense that, okay, we've got the exact price. Here's what it's worth to let's say, degrade the aquifer beneath the land that grows the grain, that feeds the cow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, is a, it is a useful tool, but I think it's, it's important to see it as a heuristic, right? It's a kind of first approximation. Um, it is based on assumptions, and yet it, it, it's not kind of invented, right? Like you can look at uh, studies that say, well, here's, what, here's how long it would take to restore soil quality, um, even you know, with kind of the treatment of workers, here's what a reasonable living wage would be. So you're underpaying workers by this amount. That figure is not arbitrary, but it is debatable, right? It's not a kind of finding of natural science. It's a kind of a construct that is still very useful. I mean, I think I think a lot of the subtler economic thinkers are completely on board with that, but there is often this slippage where just by virtue of quantification, people sometimes have the sense that we've we've given a completely exacting and exhaustive account of value. So I, I agree with how you put it, basically. Yeah. It seems too that like there the true price system to a certain extent, you know, in, in the Amsterdam example and in your book, it exists in in that country. It it, it it exists more generally, and I think this is where the MMT framework can come in handy. Um, in you know, in in places like the United States, where we have sin taxes in states, right, and we have tax schedules that are organized and arranged federally, where in in a very real way that the state is determining the price of doing certain activities, right, um, and it is it is harnessing its ability in the, in the case of the federal government to create and regulate the the money system. So yeah, you know thinking about, you know, disincentivizing through making it prohibitively expensive, for example, to buy cigarettes, right? To to do things that will and the, there is some there are some calculations that are done to that effect. I I guess I'd be interested in exploring the differences between what's exciting about the true price system and what already exists in terms of a a tax system that is primarily it seems about you know, incentivizing certain uh, labor and disincentivizing uh, labor and consumption in, in other directions. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, I think I do see where you're going with that. I mean, 
One thought is that true price in part is a kind of consciousness raising tool, right? So one could probably make the same case about taxes, although I, I don't think they're quite as ubiquitous as prices, you know, especially in a consumer society, like you kind of forget about them a lot of the time. And then like, you grumble once a year and deal with them or something. But maybe with the exception of sales taxes, sales taxes might be a, an exception there. But, you know, like, to take cigarettes, your example, or, you know, it's, it's interesting how it can apply to so many things. Hamburgers, people have done these really striking calculations about if we if we pay the real cost of a hamburger um, with a more expansive scope boundary defining those costs in space and time on humans and non-humans, very few people would would eat a lot of $120 hamburgers, right? This would just, this would change consumer behavior. Um, but for people who were still willing to do that sort of behavior at an exorbitantly high price, you would also then generate some surplus, some revenue that could be used to remediate those harms in theory. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, that's a provocative one. It does get yeah. me thinking uh, at, at, at thinking about hamburger parties in the Hamptons, and, and I like that thought. It's kind of funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should move on to the next chapter in which you take on um, the 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 construction of the very idea of a living wage you know this is a phrase that gets thrown out uh a lot and i mean i think i often use it especially when i'm trying to argue for and explain what a what a a job guarantee a federal job guarantee might be or a, or a local job guarantee might be and what 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 kind of benefits what kind of social benefits it'll provide i'll say it provides a living wage, right? But you've looked into how how that notion um, is variously constructed and some of the some of the problems and possibilities with it. Yeah, you know, I, I found this chapter really interesting to report and research because I think, like you, I had this this view that living wages are um, are really pretty good. They let people. <laughs> enjoy a, a reasonable and decent kind of middle-class life. And my sense of what that means would include things like going out to a meal now and then in a restaurant, saving a bit for retirement, being able to buy your kids a gift, saving a bit for a rainy day fund, you know, cars break down, phones get dropped, stuff comes up in life. All of this intuitively seems like part of living. So if we have the term living wage, shouldn't it enable this? And so, in that chapter, I, I look at one of the more influential living wage calculators, which is run by an economist at MIT. It's just the MIT living wage calculator. So this is used by all sorts of businesses in wage setting, as well as by nonprofits in shaping policy guidelines. So it's a very influential tool. And yet the actual content of life that this this tool enables it's it's very meager and it's much less generous than the idea of a living wage even a hundred years ago as articulated by people like teddy roosevelt the labor leader samuel gompers the catholic priest john ryan who coins the phrase living wage in a book they all had a much more capacious sense of what living was that includes some of those elements i mentioned like saving for retirement for a rainy day um, some vacation or leisure time all of this seems like it should be part of living. So when you have a highly influential tool um, 
that receives some level of corporate support for its research. And then that same research is enabling corporations to pay very meager wages. You know, alarm bells, I think, pretty naturally go off. The chapter is kind of trying to argue for an expansion of the concept, but we're, we're in a tricky terminological corner because living wage already exists in the public imagination and its terms are largely defined. So for people who want to expand it, the options can feel cumbersome. You know, you can say we pay a real living wage or a true living wage. Um, in the UK, this gets a little more absurd because they call what we call a minimum wage, the living wage. So then their critics want the true living wage, but then they themselves have a pretty constrained definition. So now we're several levels in and you have to have, no, the real true living wage. At some point, you kind of throw your hands up and say, we need a new term. And yet there's something really important that that term captures, which is that there's a moral dimension to wage setting. It's not simply where supply and demand meet and markets clear where the good in question is labor. No, there's a kind of a moral choice that employers are making when they're when they're wage setting thinking about yeah these terms back to the to the true price but incorporating it here the the definition of life and living um the definition of true the definition these are these are the province of philosophers right and rhetoricians and um humanity scholars broadly your book makes a compelling argument that that we need to bring the philosophy back into center of economic discussions. Um, and as we've been talking about these things, I, I completely agree. It, it, it occurs to me that, that when it comes to these moral questions, the economists as presently trained are some of the least equipped uh, to, to have them. Um, and and to, to a certain extent, an economist is someone who can get away with you know, making broad claims without considering the moral and ethical, um, you know, c- components of those claims and impacts of those claims. They, they just sort of don't have to. It's, it's assumed that they will not. So of these projects, you, you document several of them. It seems, you know, e- economists maybe are not the best to have these conversations, although there are exceptions, of course. Maybe Silicon Valley bros are not the best at determining how labor should be distributed and how people should be paid. Um, and this was, I think, one of the more exciting, I- exciting in that it's new and that I, ha- I wasn't aware of it. And I could see its implementation. And Scott and I were talking about it before jumping on with you. It seems incredibly promising. Could you talk to us about the, the public management of the gig economy as it's being out, like piloted in um, a, a town in California? Yeah, absolutely. I also find this a really fascinating case study. I think it's maybe a little bit more outside the Overton window, but that's kind of precisely why it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, living wages are on people's radar, even if the term has has been corrupted and co-opted. It's sort of in the imagination already. But the idea that gig work should exist in a, a public manifestation, that there should basically be a public option for people who do irregular work, Um now, that could be irregular work as the gig companies are currently structured. So delivering food, driving, those kinds of jobs, part-time um, jobs. But it could also be all kinds of other irregular work, whether that's engineering or architectural or legal. I mean, it, there's not something kind of limiting it to one set of occupations. The 
the the deep insight I think in this chapter is that the current benefits of gig work are separable from its private sector manifestation. So you can retain some of those benefits. In fact, you can increase them. Things like flexibility, um, an attractive range of types of work. You can retain those benefits while eliminating some of the very well-documented downsides. So for instance, if you deliver or drive for some of the dominant gig work companies today, you may lose 30 to 50% of every transaction in fees that are supporting venture capitalists and distant shareholders. That's a huge part of the economic transaction that's flowing away from, from the workers. A public option could dramatically reduce that extractive component. It might be 2 to 5% per transaction, sort of enough to maintain overhead and infrastructure for the platform. But there's no commitment to enriching shareholders. That's not part of the structure. It operates in the public interest by design. And so if you had a public option for gig work, you would have much more money left on the table for those workers. This could also show up in more affordable prices for consumers, right? Again, there would be uh, a kind of ethical calculus that would have to balance those competing demands. But increasing the size of the pie is one very attractive feature. Another thing that I think is striking here is that, you know, there are sort of good reasons to aggregate a lot of supply and demand for work in one place. You know, network effects are real. Convenience goes up for both job seekers and for the consumers of that work when a lot of people are in one place. So by siloing all of this work across dozens of competing private sector platforms, we're, we're losing efficiency. Interestingly, the private sector is being uh, lauded every day in the media as this sort of generator of efficiency and ruthless productivity. In fact, it's highly inefficient. A public option could be much more efficient in harnessing those network effects. Uh, a final thing I'll say about that chapter is just that, you know, we're already familiar with this model, right? Public infrastructure is cherished. Even today, in a kind of bipartisan sense, people like the post office, right? People like functioning roads. People like safe water. So road systems, water networks, expanding that same principle to labor markets such that workers had safe um, attractive options for jobs with benefits that could be portable like you could enforce labor law much more readily you could have benefits that travel with workers their legal classification as employees all of this would be much easier in a public sector option a final interesting wrinkle and, and then i'll pause but a final interesting wrinkle with this is like there's a, a certain amount of latitude in implementation. There are trials happening at municipal levels in multiple cities around America. There's also interest from larger regional governments uh, in multiple countries. One other wrinkle that is kind of interesting is that even if you are highly committed to the somewhat tendentious view that private markets are inherently more efficient and you think, okay, a public option would just be mired in bureaucracy and red tape, and it would sort of function like the DMV. It would be no fun, right? No one would want to go <laughs> use it. Even if you have that view, that's actually not fatal to this model. And the reason for that is that you could have a sort of concession whereby 
in the same way that a national lottery or a national park will have private operators functioning within a broadly public program, you know, the operation of the platform per se, you could have a competitive bid and let a company operate it. And then so whatever sorts of benefits that are in fact unique to private markets, you can retain those, right? If the platform is just going to be much more intuitive and well-designed, the software will never glitch if a private company runs it. Okay, let's assume that that is the case. We can still have a public option. You just have a concession whereby, you know, for a term of five years through a competitive bid, a private operator manages the platform. But the statutory function is still in the public interest, right? Profits are capped for that private operator. And the goal is the provision of work in a public utility model. I'm curious if any of the uh, people you talked to or any, any of your research took you to the history of workforce boards in the United States. They, um, I have a, a an older friend uh, in the Tampa Bay area who, uh, for Hillsborough County, um, worked in um, public job training and placement for decades and decades uh, from... Uh, the great society to the end of welfare as we know it. I mean, those were, he saw all those changes and they were able to do all kinds of interesting, creative activist um, uh, uh, training and placement uh, work. And, you know, they would, they would, you know, have libraries built and then they would have, uh, you know, the people they were working with staffed those libraries once they were built, building boardwalks, you know, along waterways and um, creating jobs and training people and placing people in public employment. And according to his telling, I'm not some, you know, studied historian of this history, but I, I know something about it. According to his telling, it's the Clinton administration in the 90s that um, changed the legal structure of workforce boards, which basically turned the the um, requirements for representation from public majority to private majority. So so the kind of more active public governmental mediation of of training job training and job placement that used to go on has been more and more and more privatized and serving private interests. And it seems like uh that this model of a of a public option for a digital gig economy would be a way to push back against the the legacy of Clintonism. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think workforce boards are probably one of the more plausible candidates for implementing this model. I know in fact that they are already in conversation around the country with uh Wingham Rowan, who is a sort of British policy entrepreneur who helped introduce this idea to the American um, political and economic space, he is very closely integrated to workforce boards. And, you know, it, it makes sense intuitively. You're already, as a workforce board, kind of convening a lot of private sector employers, getting a sense of your local labor market. So if there is, you know, a stadium in town that, hires a lot of people seasonally or maybe there is a, a a dock where a lot of cargo is getting unloaded but they're hiring workers kind of sporadically um 
they're already sort of looking for reliable workers. And instead of letting all of that work go through private sector staffing agencies, which again, take very large extractive cuts per transaction, aggregating that through a, a public sector option, um, I think it can push back on privatization, which I I don't know the Clinton history, but I, I think that sounds right broadly. And, you know, another thought is just that public entities, you know, whether this is city hall, public schools, um, parks, and open space departments, they are already large employers in many states and cities around the country. There's a lot of work that they are hiring. Much of it is part-time and flexible. So there's there's basically a lot of low-hanging fruit, and I think workforce boards are natural conveners to, to sort of match supply and demand within a more uh, pro-social public option framework. Great. I mean, th- th- this obviously leads us to uh, what led us to you, which is um, the job guarantee or jobs guarantee gets, you know, the, the phrase is, you know, interchangeable. Um, so, yeah, so you, you became interested in this kind of pilot program that's in this small town in Austria. Um, I mean, our listeners are pretty familiar with the job guarantee because that's a that's a that plays a huge role in um, modern monetary theory. Pavlina Chernova, who is an MMT economist, you cite at length, I think, in yes. your in your book, um, uh, in your chapter about the job guarantee. But maybe you can. I mean, if 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 we just presume that our audience probably knows something about the job guarantee. What was it like experientially as a reporter to go check out what they're doing in Austria? Yeah, it was fascinating. And, you know, this town, it's it's maybe 45 minutes outside of Vienna. It's got a really interesting history where in the 1930s, it was the site of this classic sociological study on the effects of unemployment. So it was a kind of one factory town. Factory shuts down in the 1930s. Some sociologists show up from the University of Vienna, and in a very kind of journalistic, anthropological way, they just ask people questions. They spend time with them. They talk to them about how their lives are going. Um, The results are really quite sad, but very interesting. Uh, People's mental health kind of falls apart without work. A lot of the social fabric of the town frays. Um, People have this sort of sense of structurelessness to the days they don't really know what to do like there are quotes from original people in the study where they say things to the effect of you know i just feel kind of stuck between the four walls of my room i don't know what to do all day so fast forward to the present where the job guarantee is a kind of reversal of the original condition the first sociologists are studying the effects of unemployment today what happens with guaranteed employment how does this affect people not just economically, but psychologically, socially as well. Um, chatting with folks, it was almost uncanny how some of the comments from the original study showed up in different forms. I mean, I talked to one guy who said, you know, I, I have breakfast and then it's just like, I don't know what to do all day. He was describing being unemployed before he joined the job guarantee. So this sense of like looming expanses of time that are very hard to fill. Um, so, you know, there are both economists and sociologists involved in studying the current job guarantee. So, you know, the plural of uh, plural of anecdote is not data. 
but they they do have data. I was there sort of getting anecdotes and you put those two things together. It's a pretty compelling picture of um, how meaningful work, and that's an important caveat, people in the job guarantee are co-designing the work they do. They're not just forced into any job, but meaningful work has these tremendous benefits for time structure, self-esteem, social relationships. Um, and it was a huge range of folks that are participating in the job guarantee also. I mean, just being there and talking with dozens of them, it pretty quickly dispels any stereotype of like the typical unemployed person. It was, you know, it was everything from people with advanced degrees to people who hadn't finished high school, huge range of uh, ethnic backgrounds, um, range of ages. And one thing that was kind of interesting, this is a cumbersome phrase, I'm not sure I love it, but there was this sort of internalized neoliberalism in a lot of their comments where they felt like unemployed people are still sort of just like bad and lazy. And even though I'm in this job guarantee and I'm eligible for it because I was unemployed, I'm not like those people, right? I'm sort of the exception. Um, but I mean, you wonder sort of sometimes just talking to folks like that, that feels like a, a pretty devastatingly harsh view that is pretty deeply internalized in a lot of people's comments. Um, so that that's another thing that was a, a bit of a through line in remarks was the sense that like, you are a bit of a failure if you haven't found a job, even though they sort of recognize that the private market is failing utterly. It's, it's not only is it not producing enough jobs, but it's not satisfying a lot of basic needs, a lot of work that needs to be done, whether that's care work, green transition work. And I mean, you know, I, I, I do lean heavily on, on Pavlina. Her, she has a wonderful book on, like the case for a job guarantee and what it would look like at a federal level, which was really influential to how I kind of approached that town in Austria. And I think she makes very effective arguments for how it could scale and why it's a kind of compelling proposal. But the journalistic work was just fascinating. I mean, it, it's really powerful to hear folks talk about um, the, the sort of the non-financial benefits of work. In the introduction, you you preview the book by saying, you know, you're talking about a bunch of really promising developments, policies that are being piloted and tried out in all these cities across the world. Um, but you also say that some are not considered or discussed in your book. And, and in certain cases, the omission of discussion of those policies or initiatives reflects a critical assessment. Um, I couldn't help but notice that universal basic income is not featured, although there are uh, pilots, pilot programs for UBI across the the world. And I'll, I'll just sort of qualify and say that we're not big UBI folks. We're, we're jobs guarantee folks. Um, so I wonder if UBI might be one of those that you have a critical assessment in your back pocket and ready to talk about or not, or if there are others that you considered but didn't make it in um, to the book. Yeah, you know, I think the big one is is crypto. I, I don't see that as a sort of plausible or even legitimate uh, intervention that can improve economic outcomes for people. It seems just like a, a Ponzi scheme, and the evidence for that accumulates almost weekly. It, you know, with with new legal indictments um, of various companies around the world. So the other things that don't make it into the book, I, I I'm very sympathetic to various 
policies, um, tax policy, for instance, I would love to have done a chapter and did get some way into reporting for a chapter on international tax evasion, tax fraud. Um, there, there is not any sort of plausible role for tax evasion in a just economy. And so the exclusion of that from the book uh, was much more a matter of just practicality than principle. I would have loved to have had the bandwidth and the time to really report that out thoroughly. It, as it, you know, you won't be surprised to hear that these are really kind of intricate, complicated cases. And if you're going to do justice to tax evasion that spans many jurisdictions and continents and has very sophisticated accounting um, to conceal any wrongdoing, you know, that would almost be a book itself. So I wasn't able to do that, but I, I would definitely sort of like to explore that more. The universal basic income, I also am kind of more sympathetic to job guarantees than I am to UBI, and there are a few reasons for that. But that being said, I mean, I, I'm certainly not opposed to all of the interesting experiments. Uh, it does seem to have lots of traction. There's a lot of good research on it. People don't spend the money on video games or alcohol. Uh, it, it's it's very helpful as a kind of buffer. You know, I mean, one thing I... I find a little more compelling about job guarantees is just what we were describing, some of the psychological benefits that people can derive from meaningful work. Um, you know, the objection often to that comment I just made is that all of those benefits reflect a, a previous socialization in which we're taught to think that work should be central to our identities. And this is a kind of capitalist uh, socialization that we should resist. And I don't know, I mean, I'm not I guess I don't have a strong view on that. I can understand that critique, but I also feel like it could very easily be overstated and that there probably is something uh, pretty deep in human nature that responds to doing meaningful work with other humans. Um, whether that, you know, I guess, again, the UBI folks to try to take a generous view of what their response would be would probably say, well, sure, people will still do that. They'll just you know, they'll they'll mount musical productions and they'll stage plays and they'll, you know, maybe they'll even do all kinds of kind of things that people in jobs currently do, but it won't be within an employment framework and that'll be better. You know, sure, like that, that could be the case. Um, the other thing I find a little more compelling about a job guarantee, though, is just that we do have so much work that has to be done, right? I mean, I'm thinking of, two things in particular, care work and infrastructure slash green transition. I mean, we don't care well for young people or old people or sick people in America. That's like a huge need. Um, and so when you combine that with like, there are a lot of people who are a latent workforce who are not working because private sector options are atrocious and don't work for them. Um, combine care work with all of the green transition and infrastructure work that we desperately need you know, I, I see job guarantees as a tool for meeting that in a way that, that UBI might not be able to. Yeah. And for the record, I, you know, I think we are um, all for robust welfare benefits. We are all for, um, you know, not letting people starve. And we're all for um, public spending that allows for self-actualization. Uh, but I think we concur with your your critical comments about UBI uh, and would, you know, would just follow up and say that it, it's it's a largely laissez-faire kind of libertarian approach 
to problems that need, as your book points out over and over again, that needs some serious provisioning, like some serious design and structures and possibilities rather than just letting, leaving people with some, you know, a minimal amount of funds to, to experiment a little bit on their own. I mean, if there's not, if there aren't social structures to, to experiment within, then where, where are you going to do that experiment? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there. Just had a, had an idea. So um, a, a jobs guarantee, right? So I'm thinking about an ideal world where everybody's happy, including the UBI advocates. Um, jobs guarantee, and then also a publicly administered gig platform um, where one of the gigs is uh, thinking about all the things you would do with your UBI, right? So just getting together and brainstorming, <laughs> like why? Well, you know, I actually think that a publicly administered option for irregular work would be a very natural mechanism for implementing a job guarantee. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. that could be one among many other options on that platform. You know, another thing that we haven't touched on, but I'm sure you're aware of with job guarantees is that they exert this really positive pressure on private sector employers. So depending on your moral framework, this is good or bad, right? I mean, a lot of people would say, this is horrible. Like, private sector folks will have to pay more. They'll have to improve the quality of jobs precisely because people have a compelling outside option. They know they can go find a nice, well-paid, enjoyable, and meaningful job through the public sector. So why would I work at a horrific private sector employee that changes my hours week to week where I have no voice and no agency in a very low wage. Well, if, if those people have an outside option, yes, they will take it until private sector employees, sorry, pri until private sector employers improve conditions and wages. So that upward pressure, I think is another very compelling feature of a federal job guarantee. I mean, in some sense, this might be a faster route to a genuine living wage than living wage laws. I, I'm not sure I would actually defend that statement too hard, but it's this sort of other way to get to that same goal. I think a genuine living wage legislation would be wonderful, but if we can't get that, we could also have a job guarantee that sort of functionally does the same thing. I mean, that is an argument that we stand behind and it's very much part of the part of MMT thinking. And I think Pavlina would stand by it as well, which is that, I mean, the way the way it's often framed is that um, even with minimum wage laws, as long as there is structural unemployment, that the true minimum wage in in a country and economy in the world is zero dollars. Mm. Yes, <laughs> and and it's only through a public option and and a wage and benefits floor for the entire economy that you that you can get to anything resembling a minimum wage, let alone a, a living wage. Absolutely. Yeah. Surely you've thought about the prospects, right, of these various, um, the political prospects of these various initiatives, um, and you're sensitive to their contexts and to what conditions might need to be in place for for these different um, things to, to flourish or even be considered at the local level. Where, where do you stand in terms of your relative level of optimism and pessimism? Which trajectories do you find most promising um, of these, uh, the policies and, and plans that you outline in the book? 
you know, it's with the caveat that it's it's hard to to read the crystal ball accurately. I, I do have some thoughts on that, and I am pretty optimistic in an American to- context that the municipal level could function as a proof of concept for the irregular public sector option. Um, I love the thought of this functioning as a backdoor for a job guarantee as well. And I, I think actually in some of the cities that are currently thinking about it, that may be perhaps not explicitly articulated as a goal, but it may be a kind of implicit strategy is that this exists to give people work, right? And by aggregating a lot of demand for labor, both public sector jobs, um, but also private sector ones, we want to have a sufficient supply of job, um, sorry, we want to have a sufficient supply of demand for labor such that anyone interested in finding a job within this this city can do so. Um, and there are, I, I think in an American context, that is going to be the route by which it scales. I, I'd be a little surprised if it started federally and then flourished locally. I think if you have proof of concept at city or maybe state levels, this this could be compelling. Now, it would be wonderful to have an entire government take this on. And, and that seems more possible around the world. I mean, you could think maybe about a New Zealand, maybe in Ireland, depending on what happens with elections. You could imagine certain governments being relatively open to some version of this. Um, I, I'm sure you're probably more familiar than me with the, the program in India as well, which is enormous in its scale, but somewhat limited in maybe its um, its scope and the access to work that it provides for everyone. But uh, I guess I'm, I am sort of optimistic. You, you know, if you think back even six or seven years, a lot of the major industrial policy, I'll call it, that Biden has done would have seemed pretty inconceivable during the first Trump administration. You wouldn't have thought that the CHIPS Act or the IRA would would happen. That would have seemed kind of wild. So, you know, in five or six years, a lot of stuff that seems a little far-fetched today could be quite plausible. You just said first Trump administration. What did you mean by that? Oh, God. No, no you're right. That's so bad. You're right. I'm not feeling optimistic, but maybe we should strike that for the record. Because I don't, of course, that's a terrifying thought. But it's not looking good. It's I mean, not looking yeah. good. It be, and it'd be in part good. because, like, a, a lot of this has to do with domestic, variously defined, like, national or in, in, intrastate, intragovernmental um, policy. I, I think, I wonder if international versions of these programs um, or applications of this kind of thinking, um, ha- have you come across you know, uh, more internationalist versions of the job guarantee or or any of these other programs that don't seem to be so limited because I think a shortcoming potentially of the job guarantee is currently conceived is that it, it does seem to be bounded. Um, not necessarily, not essentially, but in terms of the imagination and the way that we talk about it, it, t- it tends to be, you said, in the American context. Yeah, that's... A very interesting question that I don't have a great answer for. I'm not aware of any international job guarantee or even really how that would function. I mean, the one thing that I will say just from the book is that one of the models I 
I focus on is the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque country in northern Spain, and they have a lot of incredible features. Yet one of the things that are consistently criticized for is that they rely on cheap labor. So not within Spain, but in places like China and Mexico, a lot of the precursor components for the industrial manufacturing that happens in Spain, a lot of this is coming from very low-wage contexts where people are are not unionized, they're not paid particularly well, um, there are not great labor conditions. And so there has been some effort by Mondragon to try to extend a worker-owned cooperative model into these international context so that their entire supply chain would reflect the same values that they're so, I think, rightly proud of at Mondragon in Spain. They haven't had a lot of success. And people are kind of split on why that's the case, right? I mean, if you if you listen to Mondragon, they'll say, look, the the local laws, labor laws, tax laws, even ability to have like a legal structure as a cooperative, this just doesn't exist in, in these contexts. We can't make everything in Spain. We have to have some, we have to have the competitive advantage that derives from these supply chains that originate in places like Mexico and China, or else we'll literally go bankrupt. That's the Mondragon story for what it's worth. On the other hand, there are critics, including people within Mondragon, who say, we've got to be able to figure this out. You know, it's, it's possible here. It may be harder elsewhere. Um, you know, there, there are some kind of interesting stories about even cultural resistance among workers in Mexico, for instance, who have not heard of a worker-owned co-op and are very suspicious of it and, you know, are not particularly interested when people come and try to get them excited about transforming their company into that model. There's a lot of pushback. That being said, you know, I mean, like Noam Chomsky is famous for criticizing Mondragon on these grounds, but even people within Mondragon are pretty sensitive to this sort of double standard in the way workers are treated. And so I, I guess it just seems like a tricky issue that has not really been solved effectively. I'd be curious if if you guys have thoughts on how to extend either job guarantee or just better wages and benefits in an international context. That's That seems like a tough one. The only other thought I have on that is true pricing, right? Because that is a mechanism for saying exactly how much are we underpaying people throughout a supply chain. You know, if like the European Union does pass some of this supply chain due diligence legislation, then if companies are shown to have human rights abuses in their supply chain, they'll be sued for a lot of money. Um, it doesn't feel like a great solution, but it is a sort of tool, right? I mean, this could motivate improvement in working conditions along really... The, the whole length of supply chains that span continents. Um, but what do you guys think? No, I, I just, just to clarify, what got me on this trajectory was considering the prospects of a second Trump administration in light of, you know, let, you know, there currently there's a lot of discourse around how good the economy is and how people are ignoring that, that Biden has, you know, has gotten us through and that his policies have worked. Throwing their hands up at the, his like historically low, popularity levels um while also not really having discussion about the foreign policy right uh, of the united states and and the kind of apparent and and strike striking stark uh incompatibility of you know a robust domestic program 
of public provisioning um, at the same time as one is provisioning foreign militaries and and the support of them as they conduct occupations. And it seems like there there's moral inconsistency there that needs to be parsed and, and, and grappled with that I feel like it's too easy to say, well, these are separate issues and that we we can have this conversation without having that conversation. But that is increasingly implausible also. And even some of the the earlier, you know, the big Biden legislation was often pa- packaged as good and as interesting and as kind of neoliberal jamming as they were. Uh, and I support them um, for those reasons. They were nevertheless packaged as, you know, anti-China, right? Like this, this zero-sum game with China and, you know, we got we to gotta put down China or we got to get ahead of China. Um, so, yeah, yeah th- there's all kinds of dimensions to this. I don't think we have any answers. We're just... <laughs> no, we have no answers. Just, <laughs> just problems. problems. Well, no, I, th- I think it's, a, it's an important question. And I mean, I don't know how far we should go down this road, but it reminds me a bit of the sort of green growth versus degrowth debates yeah. where the, the folks who lean really hard on green growth, they often buttress their arguments for, you know, a decoupling between economic growth and environmental impact. They, those arguments are really effective to the extent that they have a very narrow scope, right? They don't count emissions along the entire length of supply chains. So what looks like decoupling if you kind of zoom out and expand the scope, which of course for ecosystems and climate is really the only reasonable approach, those arguments become much less persuasive very quickly because in a global context, we're not doing well environmentally. And I agree that sort of partitioning that off from the economic success story is um, misguided. Yeah. Well, I would want to let you go without um, asking you to talk about uh, one of your later chapters in which you take on uh, these legal forms that I admit I I knew nothing about, but I find they're totally fascinating. It's kind of expanding your uh, exploration of alternative models of ownership um, that you discuss in the Mondragon chapter, uh, and that's with this this legal instrument called perpetual purpose trusts do i have that right yes that's right so what are they and what do they do and why are they important yeah so they're they're sometimes also called employee ownership trust but whatever they're called they are legal documents um and they are a new way of organizing ownership of companies so to back up a little bit if you think about someone who is on the point of selling their company maybe a retiring baby boomer, of which there is no shortage in America. There's a lot of wealth that will be transitioning in the next decade, and it's happening already. Um, One thing those folks can do is simply sell to a strategic buyer or to private equity. So a competitor within their economic sector or, you know, a bigger private equity firm, typically. Now, if you do that, it's very likely that your business will cease to exist. Um, the strategy of rolling up companies within a sector. I mean, this happened famously with veterinary practices and private equity, but it's actually a pretty pervasive strategy. So jobs go away, stuff gets consolidated, um, return on investment over a pretty short-term time horizon is prioritized. What's an alternative model? 
well, this is where the legal instrument of a trust becomes important because you can kind of guarantee through the trust that the business will not be sold to private equity. Um, you can say this business will remain owned by its workers or it will remain owned by um, an advisory board, but you can stipulate within the trust not only a sort of permanent ownership structure, but also a permanent set of goals that typically do not include profit maximization. So some of the folks that I profile in the book are using this to enshrine very pro-social goals, things like profit sharing with employees, things like donating a percentage of profits to an environmental nonprofit, um, even structural things like never letting the highest to the lowest paid worker ratio exceed 10 to 1. Um, another example is prioritizing hiring people who are formerly homeless or incarcerated. There's a bakery in Oakland right next door to where I live that wanted to enshrine that goal, but they also needed financing. They needed money from investors. And the concern was, if we take money without any kind of protection, the the goal of the business is kind of expensive. It's hard to work with folks who are formerly homeless. This costs money. If our investors want their return and they see an opportunity to cut costs, we could lose the entire sort of mission of the business. The trust is a way around these kinds of dilemmas. It's a way of permanently enshrining more pro-social motivations kind of into the, the DNA of the ownership of a company. We uh, spoke about, I guess, a couple of years ago with Kim Stanley Robinson about his book, The Ministry for the Future, um, which I, as I was reading your book, found a lot sort of parallel in terms of object, right? It seems like if we are to write the ship in whatever way you choose, but especially it, with respect to environmental catastrophe, um, we need to fundamentally rethink our relationship to the economy. So there's an optimism, I think, and we asked earlier about the pessimism and optimism. Um, I, I share, I think, both with you. I, I detect both in your answers. It's like, you know, it depends and contextually, right? Um, but uh, in terms of Kim Stanley Robinson's work in that book, are you, are you familiar with it? I am, yeah. I've read that novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that novel... Um, you know, it's it's about a jobs guarantee. He talks about Mondragon. He yep. talks about uh, yep. all of these different initiatives. And it's not one thing. It's a, a a basket, to use a favorite metaphor for economists. It's a basket of things, right? Um, yeah. And, and they are all necessary in the end. Um, one of the things that has stuck with me about that book and I think is relevant in our current context where we have Elon Musk owning X, right? formerly Twitter, um, and the ownership of our social media platforms or so much of the information where we will share about this episode of this podcast, right, and effectively yeah. help to to perpetuate his ownership uh, and wealth, right? Uh, that At the center of KSR's work is an intervention into public ownership of media, right, and 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 the the labor of that are that is done collectively by people who participate in it and i wonder if you have any thoughts in that direction about the the place of not just social media but media generally media work as a media i don't know if you consider yourself a media worker as a writer 
um, who publishes in, um, you know, primarily online spaces now. Um, yes, maybe ask you uh, by way of conclusion to, to sort of reflect on your position in this broader media landscape and help us to to understand our own. You Easy know, question. Little lob. Yeah, I just want to <laughs> softball it. <laughs> no, that's that's such a great question, and I'm sure we could have a whole nother conversation just on that topic, um, much of which would need to be off the record. <laughs> in part because I, you know, I'm very critical <laughs> of the way the mainstream media covers economics. A lot of it is is just so disappointing. It's so limited in scope and imagination. There's a kind of hagiography of entrepreneurs as visionaries which is often just profoundly like misguided and unempirical. There's this, you know, cheerleading for the Fed and markets and the sort of casual acceptance of very outmoded models, whether that's for labor markets or how inflation works, how unemployment works. Um, I'm very critical of both right and left media coverage of economics. And so I, I like your suggestion, which I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure Kim, Kim Stan would agree that the ownership of media itself is a pretty decisive intervention. You know, it's not a coincidence that the, the current UK government is trying to kind of kill the BBC. Um, NPR loses public funding, it seems, by the year. The one thing that gives me a little hope for, for media is the kind of nonprofit model. I mean, places like ProPublica, but really quite a few other very, very impressive newsrooms are grant funded. You're still in some sense relying on the the goodwill of foundations and very wealthy people, some of whom have very questionable political commitments. So it's not a perfect system, but I think any kind of protection where you have a dedicated endowment and then you can do your own research um, and reporting, that's that's helpful, right? I mean, like even... The New York Times um, takes a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry, right? They have this outfit called T-Brand Studios where they write ads for fossil fuel companies using New York Times employees. So then they'll have their kind of their climate coverage. And then right next door, they're taking money from T-Brand Studios. I mean, The Guardian in 2019 stopped taking money from fossil fuel companies, which is encouraging. And, you know, a generation ago, this same debate played out with taking ad money from the the tobacco industry, the, the majors in cigarettes. So there's some hope, like more and more people in the media are realizing that how it's funded um, really has huge implications for what is covered and how it's covered. And I, I think, you know, the disappointment I have with uh, mainstream coverage of economics is, is not unique to me. I think a lot of thoughtful people feel this kind of sense of claustrophobia when they read the coverage and so maybe they just don't read the coverage but that's a problem too because you know to to be to zoom out a little bit like paul samuelson is not the only person sculpting cultural common sense however influential his econ textbook is it's also it's the journalists who study that textbook and then go to write for bloomberg or the times or npr i mean a lot of ostensibly liberal publications are absolutely committed to very unempirical and dogmatic economic positions that are um, not taken seriously by a lot of economists who would like to change how the field is taught. So maybe that brings us kind of full circle to teaching economics, letting that shape journalism, 
changing the ownership and funding structure of journalism, all of these interventions are really crucial to improving um, what the the philosopher uh, Michael Polanyi talks about the tacit dimension, which is this kind of reservoir of assumptions and common sense. Um, brother of the the famous Viennese economic historian Karl Polanyi, very interesting family. That was wonderful. Great, great. Yeah, Nick Romeo, thank you so much for joining us on Money on the Left. We really enjoyed it. Thanks to you both. It was a pleasure.